Welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two thirty-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with button prompts. This is season one, and we are talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my friend Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes, where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode, we are getting into chapter five. Nate, how's it going tonight? It's going good. I have a list of things that uh, happened this week that I am happy about. Like in your life? Yes, in my life. Um First one would be in World of Warcraft. I got the elite player versus player set knocked out before the end of the season here. So that's kind of been taking up my attention a little bit, but I still got some time for Xenoblade in there. Is this classic or retail? Retail. I still stick in there for retail a little bit. And then the other thing that is making me smile is my wife got me a pair of socks that has uh, my son's face plastered all over the socks as a pattern his smiling face and so every time i look down especially like during a bathroom break i sit there and i look down at my socks and i just have to laugh that's that's adorable nate but yeah i'm doing good uh let's get into the game here the other game xenoblade chronicles like i said we're starting chapter five here it starts with a cut scene we are in colony six and it's Sharla, and there are these other uh, characters with her, and it seems like we are in Medius Res experiencing the attack on Colony 6 that precipitated Sharla and Juju and everybody else, and everybody else's escape to the refugee camp. Sharla and Juju are there in the scene, and there's Godot. We mentioned him earlier. We think, we think Godot is Sharla's fiance, maybe husband. We get a look at him for the first time. He close up. He does look a bit like Ryan. Similar facial features. He could be five or ten years older than Ryan. His short, blonde hair. He wears a green military vest and he sports an ether rifle like Charlotte does. We are also introduced to Authoron, which in the quote touch the Monado scene that Nate and I that you and I did uh, on in the first few well, one or two episodes. I think it's episode two. I described him as Giancarlo Esposito with a with a goatee. Well, he's here. Well, that was Authoron, and I guess he was a like a captain uh, for the Colony Six militia. And he's a dark-skinned man, bald with a white goatee. He wears a khaki tech vest over Cloud Strife's signature dark blue turtleneck. His pants are loose-fitting with green and blue earth tones. He wears brown leather boots and also sports an ether rifle. Nate, do you remember very much about this scene? I, I don't recall. It's been a little bit since we played it. I just remember getting a bigger sense of the events of Colony 6. It seems like everybody from Colony 6 sports the ether rifle as their weapon of choice. We see Charlo with it, I guess. Uh, Gadalt, uh, or Gatto, or whatever you want to call him. I've, I've heard it a couple different times within the game itself sound different, based on whose accent is saying the name. But, um, yeah. He he has one of those ether rifles, and now Atheron does too. So it, it seems to be the weapon of choice for them. Where we see Dunbin with a sword, uh, we see the Monado being used. We see Ryan with this big shield sword thing. So uh, a, a little bit. That's something I've noticed. Is it seems there's a weapon that's distributed as sort of like a from a military sense to these people whereas maybe colony nine didn't have as much of a 
fighting force to it. Even though we saw the soldiers, we saw the Waluigi captain guy, it, it seems a lot more makeshift than the organized uh, forces of Colony 6, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Authoron says, Medic Sharla, here are your new orders. You'll be in charge of the evacuation. And Godot says, I'm happy that you'll be part of the evacuation because um, I'll be able to keep my mind on the battle knowing you're safe. What a nice guy. Sharla says, promise me you'll meet us outside the colony. Just get out alive. And Godot says, yeah, I promise. Don't worry. The final shot of the scene is we see Godot literally walking into a band of fire. He kind of does a dramatic Sephiroth Mm. shot where he's marching into this scene of burning flames, kind of like Sephiroth does, but it's not... But the context of the scene, the tone of the scene isn't that he's... The tone of the scene is like he's walking into sacrifice or death. And we talked about that the last episode, the idea that he made a sacrifice, maybe just of of fighting and being captured and not making it out. That is a kind of sacrifice, but he also could have made the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, the, The sense I had from it though, was the way they just couldn't help me from feeling like Godot was either going to be dead when we arrive or will be soon becoming dead the way that they set up Ryan and Sharla. So I, I don't have a whole lot of hope for him going into this chapter and we'll resolve that by the end of it. At least we think we will because we never see a straight up kill scene you know that's that's one thing we learn about video games and movies is unless you see the person like physically dying in someone's arms exploding or like an extended parting ways scene unless you get that confirmation shot it's always up in the air when it comes to fantasy and sci-fi i missed one note here the final shot of the vision is uh back to mysterious face And we hear his notorious voice again. He says, I'll keep him real safe inside my belly. And Mm. it's, we're of course referring to Juju and then Charlotte thrashes awake and it was a nightmare. And we're back at the refugee camp. Shulk and Ryan approach her. She says, how long have I been unconscious? And Shulk says about four hours. And she says, I've got to get out of here. We've got to rescue Juju. And Ryan, they so so you want to bust into their base, and well, we want to go too. And and Ryan, he has that tanking sentimentality again. He says, "I get roughed up a lot, and we don't know anyone else who can use ether." And so, like like you mentioned last week, he has an appreciation for someone who can heal. And then finally, before we get control of our team again, she points us the way to Colony Six. Yeah, and like last time, I'm not going to pursue juju with urgency just because we're we're stuck in that video game dichotomy of there are quests that have a little clock near them that say you're not going to be do, able to do this shortly after events happen so i'm struck with a sense of urgency more in my quest log than with juju's life hanging in the balance just because i know how video games work so do you have no sympathy for juju whatsoever Juju is he he isn't grating on me. He isn't like a Dan from Xenogears, right? <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't have the menacing look from the first moment you see him that just makes you want to punch him in the face. So I I I'm okay with Juju. There's a little bit of an impulsiveness of I just saved you. 
and now you run off again like what so there there is mild annoyance on my part i i want to save him but it suffers a little bit of they didn't even really give me time to i i learned about their plight but I didn't connect with them at all. I, I've been spending more time with Sharla, just out in the world. You've got those little battle dialogues flying. You've got the hearts clicking as they have quests they fulfill together and everything. So you, as a player, are able to invest a little bit more in these characters when we get time with them. Whereas Juju, we met him, we brought him home, he got emotional, he left. Uh I need I need a little bit more to feel that investment, that drive to be like, I I gotta save this kid. Now, generally I'm a good guy, so I'm gonna eventually get to it, but you know how it is. So when we've been playing music in the in these episodes here, um, what's worth mentioning is that some locations have a music track for daytime and a different music track that is a variation on the theme for nighttime. And You've heard the Gower Plains track one or two times already, um, but you haven't heard the Nighttime track. And I think it's my favorite song in the, in the soundtrack so far. The composition is just spectacular. It has a flute lead. It has a nylon string guitar in the rhythm section. A string section um, comes in partway through and then builds. It is enchanting and moody and nighttimey and just spectacular and we've talked a little bit about music in the past and again we haven't done the research to know whether this nighttime track is a yasunori mitsuda track or if it is a yoko shimomura track i'm leaning a little more shimomura because of what else i can connect it to but i, I can't confirm that but it does bring up a note for me of you know, when it comes to JRPG music, everyone name drops Nobue Umatsu for Final Fantasy. And um, that's great. He's kind of seen as like the godfather, the big name in the industry. But when I think of Yoko Shimomura's range, she got started in the industry. One of her earliest kind of hits was the Street Fighter 2 music, which is like this driving anthem type music that makes you want to get up and fight you know and now we've got these subtle little atmospheric things that make you just want to relax in an open world in some of these cases and her recently with the we talked about the nintendo direct there's the uh live alive game coming out it's a it's a re-release of a 90s game where she did the music for that and she also contributed to the scenario so uh i i think you know i've always known her name and i've known what she's done but i'm getting a feeling like maybe she's my number one uh, jrpg music composer when i think of the uh range and the amount of work she's put out there Nate, I have done a little looking at the composers for this game, and I think uh, Yasunori Matsuda only has one track on this, and it's like the credits or some sort of final conclusion-y huh. sort of jam. Okay, so this almost certainly is her work then. That vehicle we saw sitting in the lake in front of the refugee camp, we see that in, in the beginning of the chapter, and so um, we can confirm that that was how the refugees got there, and not that it was there. Uh, beforehand and i wonder we we talked about this a little bit deeper it's another thing that doesn't necessarily look like it was built by homs it just kind of is utilized by homs because it looks like a big turbine 
that they attached some stuff onto and made it work with that. It's even kind of got like a big tote handle on the top of it. Yes. Like something much bigger would just pick it up and carry it, or it would attach to something else. It really makes no sense why that would be built onto it if it was the sole purpose of that thing was an a as an aircraft. That would certainly ruin the aerodynamics of it, by all means. And there's like these makeshift pontoons jammed onto the side of it too. So that to me, it's reading as an object that uh, once had another purpose and they said, hey, if we just, this turbine, it can get up in the air and can go. If we can just stabilize this, we can use it. It's a vessel, right? We can ride on this thing. First thing I did, I, and this is a little bit of advice, I moved the abilities on my ax, action bar to have my backslash, my side slashes, and topple all on one side of the Monado icon so that when I'm in combat, I can set myself up behind a guy, mash the button, move quickly, mash the two side attack buttons, and if they've got that effect on them, I can hit the topple button as well, all in rapid succession. So that made my combat playing as Shulk. Now I know you've diverted to not playing as Shulk recently, but that made my Shulk moments a little bit more enjoyable. I was finding the UI, I had this like desire with, I don't know what other game inspired me to do this, but to move across that UI, I wanna tap the L and R buttons to select the moves. And it's, it's not that, it's the D-pad. So you kind of have to like stop your motion with your thumb that's moving your character and use the D-pad to change moves here and there. Uh, maybe I'll discover some like weird hand trick to do both at the same time. But in other games, I would imagine you're moving your character, you're changing abilities at the same time because they would map that ability change to something on the shoulder buttons. So I just found that I needed to reorganize my bars in order to have it just be a little bit more conducive to fast-paced combat. So that was the absolute first thing I did was sat and did nothing but stare at my UI for quite a few minutes. I wonder what the toggle ability buttons are on the Wii remotes. That's a great question. I, I've often thought about that of... Did the majority of people who play this just grab that Wii Remote Classic uh, add-on and say, I need a real controller for this? The Wii always had this weird space of, if it, doesn't, if it didn't have a significant amount of functions mapped to the motion controls, which often sucked, then there weren't enough buttons to do all the functions that regular controllers would do. So it was always in a weird place with that. Post-production Tyler here. The standard Wii remote has the D-pad and analog stick in separate hands, which will make selecting abilities easier than on the Switch. The typical Wii Pro controllers, however, have a button layout similar to the Switches with the D-pad and analog stick next to one another. One workaround would be to adopt the claw technique for handling the controllers, meaning keeping the thumb on the D-pad and the index on the stick. Um, however, it should be noted that players can rebind these buttons in Xenoblade Chronicles' in-game settings, perhaps to the triggers, which is not something Nate and I have realized we can do yet. My first goal was to, with Gar Plains and the second level that we went up to where the previous chapter's boss fight was, my goal was to explore every inch of the planes because now I don't have the threat of those, like, progress the story icons kind of blocking me from areas where it's like, well, I can't go there because that's actually going to 
move my story along you know the you also mentioned there was secret areas that were i had not discovered at that point so i was driven to kind of finish gar planes my my quest log had several quests that were had the little clock icon on them i definitely wanted to get those done and i also wanted to get those secret areas explored because completionism is a thing that i really enjoy in games or at least to the degree of i want to do as much as i can in the moment and not just like shotgun the game and come back and do it later because i know myself and if i finish a game if i get that credits screen to show up i'm probably not going to go back (laughs) and do all the side stuff after the fact so i like to do it in the moment one thing i'm noticing running around is there's just a lot of level 75 to 80 mobs pretty much everywhere which I don't know if that means there is a significant like end game aspect to the game where you're revisiting a lot of old areas with objectives that are to kill these high level mobs or if they're more so just like a sense of danger aspect because last chapter we mentioned the rock part but the further east I go I'm finding all sorts of things that are level 75 plus and it's not like i'm finding 30s 40s 50s 60s it's all at that top end for whatever reason so i'm curious about that it kind of becomes not fun running into them everywhere you know i just want to explore and hear these mobs but generally i'm able to run around them mostly so what secret area or areas did you find I think it was the, the one you mentioned from the last episode, the Overlook. It was like a, a winding cave that brought you to a, a platform that you could kind of see the whole valley uh, from above. Yep, that's the one. And, and then there was another one on the second platform that was like a waterfall, uh, at the height of a waterfall. And there were several quests that revolved around going up that thing. But since I had already gone there and got the little... Uh, teleport icon which i don't know do all is it just me or do all the like landmark icons look kind of like butt plugs i don't know if that's inappropriate to say but that's what i see it's just a little little butt plug everywhere they look like obelisks to me okay well now (laughs) maybe you won't be able to unsee it but that's just uh i don't know if my, my brain has rotted to the point where that's that's the way it works but that's that's just fine dude um yeah that second that second secret area is called um, believers paradise yes believers paradise and i have some some notes here about like spending more time to actually explore and think about what i'm looking at uh there's this place uh Kamos guidepost and it is not mechanical makeshift steampunk constructed by humans it looks genuinely ancient um it's ornately decorated stone it's got moss growing on its surface so it's been there a while uh and i wonder if guidepost is a name that people attributed to it's been there a while they use it as a guidepost or if it was created thousands tens of thousands who knows years ago uh as to function as a guidepost like that was specifically the purpose for which it was constructed i find another one that uh jabos rock uh, has the exact same architecture, but it's completely broken down. So these are more so towards the entrance. So maybe I should have noted this last time, but I didn't. Uh, but it, what made me think about mentioning this was as on that second layer, as we got up higher, there's even more of these. They're all over the Gar plane. So wondering what their origin is, if there was a 
there's already hints of a prior civilization to the Homs, but I was getting the impression with the like the Ether Factory in uh, outside of Colony Nine that they were a high tech prior civilization, and this is looking very ancient, uh, progenitorial. I don't know if that's a real word. Uh, from progenitor race, you know, kind of thing. So did you circle back to the refugee camp for more quests? Yes, there there was a quest line I did with uh, Ewan and Matroya. I don't know if you experienced that one as well. I did. And there is a Nopon named Pama who is depressed after leaving Colony 6, so they want to make a picture book to cheer her up. They need... An artist, they need a writer for the story. You gotta gather materials. You gotta encourage Ewan to step his game up. Um, as I wrap up the quest, I notice that I'm given quests to talk to the other person between Ewan and Matroya, but they're literally standing five feet away from each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, do you want to just, like, I don't know if they're on non speaking terms or what but he probably already heard what you said i don't yeah. know why i need to re- relay it but uh, it's a video game so mommy and daddy um, are fighting exactly and uh the the most interesting thing about this quest is that we receive a vision that Pama is going to get so excited from this book about the lakes and going for a swim and everything that Pama's is going to want to go for a swim and she's going to drown from doing that i can't believe i saw that yeah yeah shulk gets a flash forward that pama the little no pond orphan is going to be so enchanted by this picture book that we've painstakingly put together he's it will inspire him or her to go into the river and accidentally drown that is so so (laughs) strange Oh, Based boy. on what we know about Xenogears, I have a feeling that Takahashi likes abusing his little animal friends. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, because we know something horrible and biblical happens to Choo Choo. <laughs> yes. So, uh, it, it, as this quest wraps up, I don't know if it's a branching quest line, but there's there's kind of two options presented to you. There's a, a caretaker of Pamas who you can help her get her back on her feet because she's sick right now and she could feasibly stop Pama from drowning but there's also the option of just changing that picture in the picture book and I didn't I don't know the way the quest panned out that that was branching for me there wasn't really a confirmation of anything but I did the helping the caretaker first because I am anti-censorship I want the book to remain as its original artistic vision and uh, so I, I would rather Pama be able to read the original texts and then have a caretaker keep her from drowning, if that is of any consolation. Amazing. I went the other direction. I fetched a drop of magical water to change the picture book to change Nopan's reaction to it. And uh, now I feel like I've, uh, I've done some irresponsible 1984 stuff. Now we have both perspectives, so that's the the best part about playing a game together is that we can. I think it was our first uh, interaction with Ryan where we did the bro moment, and you utterly failed it, and I succeeded. It's another example of us getting both sides of the coin. Yeah. Speaking of which, I got the Charlotte Reinhardt scene and aced it. 
I, I don't know what I'm doing. I've been doing everything with these. Maybe it's because you're playing Sharla that you are getting more relationship points with I, them. Because I'm I'm still not in green smile territory with you, uh, Sharla. I found an item that when I forget who gifts gifts it to who because it's because it depends on who wants it, not you know who, who appreciates what. But I found one item that I had at least six of that gave one of those two heroes three hearts rather than one or negative one mm. and so i pummeled them with that and it got me over the line um the the questions were low balls but i'm pleased to say it was the first heart-to-heart talk that i nailed i i don't know if using nailed is the right word in this context here between these two characters it but, will be uh, yeah exactly i i also had a, a moment where you know as we previously said, sometimes my mind is in the gutter, but I feel like this one I can blame on the game. So in combat, at the end of a fight, Sharla said, I could really use a shower right now. And what? Shulk says, yeah, she, she says she could really use a shower right now. And Shulk's immediate reply is, let's stay focused. Uh, I could really do with a shower right now. Like that is, that is just too distracting for him to think about right now. Oh my goodness. Uh, the, another funny quote amidst my adventures here was, uh, I, it was, I was doing some gallivanting around and I jumped off a cliff and I lose about 80% of my health as Shulk and Shulk says, this isn't going well. And Sharla says, sorry, it's my fault (laughs) with a sad voice. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I just jumped off a cliff and Sharla is taking the blame for it. When you teleport to Spiral Valley, which is where we had that original showdown with Mysterious Face, um, Mm -hmm. an enormous level 90 Rotbart called Immovable Gonzalez is standing like 75 feet away from you. And the first time you teleport there, it is startling and unsettling and you want to walk away from him immediately. Yeah, I noticed the same thing. My question is, is there a race of beings that are Gonzalez's, or is Immovable his first name? Uh, as far as the rest of my side quests go, uh, there was a quest line of the irony of a man named Ernest, who was perpetually lying to me, uh, mm. was not lost on me. And also, I, f- I found a Turkin motherload of uh, ether crystal. Yes, they are so, protecting it. So Ernest is giving you these quests. He's talking about this like giant source of ether, and he's sending you there. And it turns out, you know, that it doesn't exist. And he's wanting you to kind of accomplish other things. One of those objectives is eventually get revenge on a on a friend of his who died. But I'm led to believe that finding this Turkin mother load of gems. <laughs> It kind of suggests that the legend that he was in pursuit of that he never reached is real. It's still just three nodes, but it is kind of startling when you get there. It's I sent I sent Tyler a picture of this, and I was like, "Damn, this this place is huge." So mm-hmm. uh, that was interesting to me. I find like uh, they, they're all standing guard of this giant cache of ether. It's not just kind of in their vicinity. You can you can see them lining the entrance to the cave and positioned strategically there. They're all too low level to really engage me until I start wanting to use it. I'm just finding that for every Hom and Nopon that I've delivered 
benevolent aid to i'm balancing the scales as i devastate the entire turkin way of life wherever i find them i'm like thanos in that i i can balance the universe by aiding some but others must die in retribution we slay a lot of turkins and i don't know what their deal is i don't know why like I, i've learned nothing about the turkin other that they they just need to die they kind of remind me of the of the beastmen races in Final Fantasy XI. They're yes. this. They're tr- most of the time they're just semi savage, semi intelligent tribes of the same race with a variety of jobs and armor sets and abilities according to their jobs, and and the Turkin could fit in right in with them quite nicely which is a first for the kinds of enemies we run into in this game aside from mechon oh i do have a note here that i found believer's paradise and there's a friend scene there that uh won't tell me who i need for that friend scene it's two empty portrait icons so i don't know what believer's paradise if there is a believer we will meet at some point that will be our friend some religious zealot Mm mm-hmm uh besides that i i think uh yeah that is all my side quests done all my ticking clocks accounted for and the map no unshrouded wait no shrouded areas on the map left super duper so at one of the far corners of gower plains we cross over into colony six according to the bionis map it is at the top of the leg near the hip maybe it's like at the ball and socket joint we could say um according to charlotte there are massive ether deposits below the colony um geographically it is more soft green fields like our plains but this time there are big vistas it is it is kind of cliffside because we're because um the it's not a large expansive grassland like it was in gower plains it is a little more narrow strip of land with a rock wall on one side and the cliffs and the ocean and oblivion on the other we can see a broken dome in the distance perhaps that was colony six in the fields around colony six there are a variety of creatures there here there are antolls which are like ants there are hoxes we didn't mention this in the previous episode but there were hoxes in gower plains and they are i assume this is a portmandau of horned foxes there are nebulas which look like sentient colonies of ether and there are upas, which are an amphibian with an anglerfish angle hanging off their head. Charlotte recommends we access the colony via the mines. And we take an open-air freight elevator down the side of the cliff to a latticed network of grassy paths that um, stick out from Bionis hanging over the ocean. And we access the mines from a drainage outlet on the other side. Before we go down there, there is a Nopon vendor who has a couple quests for us, but they are your standard kill the monster for experience sort of quest. I missed the Nopon. I did not know that there is a Nopon vendor with quests. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, uh, right. If you, <laughs> if you didn't go down the elevator, you go straight towards the big blocked gate that would have granted you access into the main uh, colony area. There are two Nopons hanging out, uh, hanging out nearby. One of them's delivering quests, and one of them has a shop. I'm always cursed with the uh, 
phenomenon of always taking the correct route. So if you're playing an RPG and you have a lot of branching paths and you want to knock out those side paths, you want to get some hidden items, yes. some extra materials, I will always pick the path that has a like progress-locking cutscene that you can't go back or you fall through a hole in the floor and just you're done you're you're into the boss fight you're in the next scene i'm not talking about this scene in particular but i'm just saying that is my experience with games in general i will specifically try and find the wrong route and i still manage to find the right one yes i do that too do you run into that more often in rpgs or in like maybe zeldas or metroidvanias any any particular genre where that really bites you in the butt I think it's RPGs mostly because RPGs have their. Uh, this is more with modern RPGs. The old school ones, they they made more just dungeony dungeons, like eight hundred paths, and just you know you're going to be in this place for hours. Whereas starting in late nineties, there was a little bit more of a guided experience where they had little extra routes to go on and experience here and there, and it was always with that type of experience it was always kind of an issue for me that it's like i thought this was a side path but it wasn't this is the main path so anyway Anyway. so that's probably how i that's that's how probably how i missed the uh no pond guys was i took the elevator thinking that that giant gate thing ahead of me looked like the place i was supposed to go first and i just got sidetracked we get into the mines and my camera hates this place it is zooming in and popping out and at ankle level pointing up and then at normal again uh, without much control or input from myself and i hate it yeah i was gonna say that the it's very video gaming that we infiltrate a city via a mine if it's fantasy it's a mine right if it's sci-fi it's air ducts so obviously, you know, in the ancient times, nobody had air ducts, nobody had air conditioning or ventilation. So they, were, but they were always digging in the air. They wanted rare gems and materials and steel. So if you're going to infiltrate anywhere in a fantasy game, it's going to be the mines. If it's a sci-fi, it's going to be the air ducts. Uh, I I was curious where this one was going to land, which one we were going to get first, because this is a little bit both fantasy and sci-fi at the same time. So I wasn't sure, are we going to get mines or are we going to get air ducts first? And I was pleasantly surprised. I, I enjoy mines. I feel like they can be a little bit more creative than the air ducts. That doesn't seem like an equivalent to me. Uh, an air duct labyrinth sounds more constrained than a mine labyrinth. Do you think they're the same sort of... They're, they're cousins of, or you know, variations of the same kind of trope. Personally, I feel there's a connection because in Xenogears, we had our air ducts above, what is Kislev? Is that the capital of Kislev? There's a scene where you're sneaking around in some air ducts. Okay, if you're ever sneaking around in air ducts, it's usually in like <laughs> a base or a capital. And there are two capitals. One would be Kislev, one would be Bledovic. Yes, Bledovic, there we go. Oh, the sand capital. Yeah, here's the unifying concept I'm going with. You have a quote-unquote impenetrable fortress or location that's been taken, and and you're just not going to walk through the front door, right? So that's the concept I'm going with here, is there's always got to be a kind of backdoor side entrance means of getting in. I, I guess we could add sewers to this too. We do a little bit of that in Xenogears as well. You do some sewer infiltration. Red rum. Yeah, exactly. 
while you do that in uh, the capital of Bart's country as well, you do some sewer infiltration. Okay. Yes, we're in the mines, and it's a little labyrinthine. There are a variety of multicolored ether deposits, which we can mine. There's electricity ones, there's water ones, there's fire ones. There are all kinds of bright, glowing, jewel-toned veins that we that we mine, and we gather them up. There are, there are mechons here. There are the drone droid ones, like the one that ratted us out uh, a... My goodness, that would be two chapters ago. There are mm -hmm. some of the more standard fare. There are the crab kind. Although there are there are crabs here too, as well as more conventional, you know, non-bionic monsters. I found an area that was flooded that had a materia crab, and I don't know is materia a word that has conventional use outside of a uh, square RPG prior to this. I know it's short for maybe material, but I, I'm not familiar with that used word, word being used in any other capacity. No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm, hmm. no, I don't think so. Nope. Yeah, so I, I found a materia crab as a uh, elite. Uh, the best word I can think of is an elite fight. That's a MMO term for a standard mob that they've given a little bit extra sauce to, health, damage, etc. And one thing I forgot to mention is that I've been fighting a lot of these special, like named versions of regular mobs that have extra health. They all play a uh, striking guitar track with like a, a shredding rock guitar that's just amping up the intensity of the fight and the tone and distortion of that rock guitar definitely sounds very j-rock to me i don't know if that's a term you're familiar with tyler it is a term i'm familiar with okay uh it's it might be pulling me out of the fantasy a little bit every time i find one of these monsters and there's just a shredding guitar in the background with the this cheesy, maybe a decade past distortion put on it. Uh, are you familiar with Gact at all? Have you heard of Gact? I have heard of Gact. I couldn't name okay. you any songs, but I have heard of him. He, he's got this band of his that plays all the songs for him, and, and it's just they'll they'll have a typical like maybe a poppy or more alternative arrangement, but just one band member, his guitarist, is always just sitting there in the background doing like a solo over the entire track half the time, and it's kind of sometimes it works, sometimes it just ends up being hilarious, but um, it it kind of reminds me of that a little bit here, it, maybe. When you listen to the Black Mages music, where they do these uh, kind of progressive rock renditions of Final Fantasy tracks uh, that were used in the game, inside and outside of the games, they were kind of tweaked and uh, expanded upon for a live audience. It kind of reminds me of that, if that makes sense. Uh, for people who don't know who Gact is, I should probably mention he is a singer, songwriter, entertainer in Japan. He's also been in movies and things like that. But if you're a gamer, you will know of his likeness. He is Genesis from the Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII game. 
yeah, in Japan, he did the vocals for the character, and the character is specifically modeled after his likeness, and he also, at the time, used the likeness of the character Genesis to promote a album of his in all the music videos and things like that, but also squall from final fantasy 8 is rumored unofficially but heavily rumored to be solely inspired by Gak's appearance at the time and his explosion into a solo career so that's mainly why i know about him is as i look into the inspiration and creation of all things final fantasy i have come across him on several occasions i didn't know that about genesis but i do remember hearing that about Squall. Yes. I have a note here as I pause to admire a wall of glowing green moss, an M42 scout unit Mechon walks right through our party as if not even noticing we are there. This is a scout unit. A scout unit. <laughs> yes. I have several instances of, uh, I, I think I'm going to get in a fight or there's no way I'm getting around this mob and they just look me straight in the face and don't care. We're too overleveled. Our, our our desire to be quest completionists has overleveled us past the aggro range of these monsters. And I haven't even done any Nopon crystal adventures either in this chapter. This yep. is all just uh, straight doing the, the side content of the game to completion. Mm-hmm. The only notes I really have about the mines is they're very typical rocky shafts with steel framing kind of holding the place together. You've seen this a location before it starts out natural rocky like we said there's some flooded areas there's crystals everywhere but as you progress you're gonna see more industrialization come to the forefront nothing yet is striking me as creative or original about that but that is a feeling that i will quickly be relieved of as we progress through this area charla hears the sound of an ether rifle firing in the distance she shouts, Gadow! And we race over there, and there's a large open area, and Otheron is there. Of course, we recognize him from the vision, although Ryan and Shulk have not yet met this person before. Although Shulk has seen him in his Touch the Monado vision in Chapter 1, and he's um, under attack by these Mechons. He's hiding under a like a shipping container or some other structure and and we join the fight we help him out um this fight isn't especially challenging there are they are basically just a concentration of normal unfaced mechons and we rescue him again it kind of bleeds uh that space of when we fight mechon we need to enchant our sword to allow people to kill them but in this cutscene, charla and othron and they're not able to defeat these things, but they are able to do some kind of damage to them, you know, and we've talked about the, the combos that knock them on their ass that allow you to do some sort of damage to them. So at this point, I'm just going to kind of go with all Mechon. If you have enough gusto, you can you can break them, you can destroy them, but Shulk's just making it incredibly easier with the Monado. It's still a little bit of a muddy area for me on how this all works, especially when you throw in the the big mech on the faced ones that can't get hurt, and then they're suddenly getting hurt, and then they can't get hurt again, and then they gotta leave. It's all just a little too vague for me to really nail down who can do what to who. Ludo narrative dissidents. Yes. 
Uh, and we we save Othran, and uh, the group begins to talk. He refers to Sharla exclusively as medic yes. this entire time. Chain of so command it, is real. Yeah, and it seems like his month has removed some sort of personal, or the, I should say, it seems like the month that he's been away from his colleagues and he's been in the thick of it surviving the Mechon in the dream sequence with Sharla. He called her Medic Sharla, but uh, now he's just calling her Medic, right? Yes. Yeah. So maybe he, he's lost a little bit of his connectedness and he's just all business now. He's all commander. He's been surviving under attack for a month. He's he's stripped down to his core. He's got nothing left. He's just got his metal, his grit. He's like he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Predator. It's just him and the monster. Yes, and he tells us that there's been a failed attempt. To, they they tried to free the civilians. Him and Gatto together tried to do what they could do, and they failed miserably. Uh, the group together still believes that they can save Gatto. Uh, Otheron mentions he feels him. He's, he's still alive out there. And uh, th they believe they can save him before he's eaten. They go, the, the people are being held at, quote-unquote, the holding pits. So, obviously, Otheron knows where that is. We don't really know what that means at the moment. I'm still kind of vague on exactly where we're going because, you know, I was under the impression we're going into Colony 6, but we're kind of delving deeper into these mines downward, right? The, if Colony 6 is above the mines, we should be going up, but uh, we're kind of uh, progressing downwards as they say we need to go rescue the others. That's right. We re we go downwards. I also noticed that Authoron recognizes the Monado and mentions Dunben, but Shulk and team have no follow-up questions to that information. Yeah, he, he questions why Shulk has the Monado now, what happened in Dunben, etc. It, it would it, If he watched that previous fight that Shulk rescued, and Shulk and party rescued everyone, he would notice that Shulk has absolutely no issue wielding this thing, and if he was party to the battle a year ago, then he would know that Dunman absolutely had a problem wielding the thing. Maybe he's not that close to the events, or he was in a at a distance to where he wasn't recognizing the colossal amount of pain Dunman was under, and maybe he didn't follow up to see that he essentially lost the use of his arm from that. But all that to say, the ease at which Shulk is dispatching Mechon using the power of the Monado, I would imagine the answer to why he has it is pretty clear and he shouldn't need to ask, but that's just me. He doesn't trust Shulk as a, I don't know, a, a deliverer, I guess I would say the best word is I can think of at the moment. He doesn't trust him to wield the Monado and questions it. Furthermore, uh, when Shulk kind of gets to the point of questioning their plan to just go to the pits and attack. Shulk has a vision of Othuron falling and giving a final dedication to Juju and Gadot. So that is what's, you know, the plan of attack is that he's the group together. Now that there's more forces, he's got Charlotte, he's got a couple new guys here. He, he knows exactly, Othuron knows exactly what he's going to do to assault the, the remaining Mechon and free the others. But Shulk questions it because obviously he's had a vision and 
Atheron's reply is he's been planning this for months. He's he's been the one in the thick of the fight. These new guys, how dare they? But you know, the spirit is how dare they question him? He's been the one fighting the fight here, and they need to listen to him. It's it's interesting because Atheron's previous planned uh, escapades with Gatto failed miserably. You would think he would be open to some new blood stepping in and having a different process than the previous just go all out method. In this vision, Atheron's plummeting into a pit of glowing green. Afterwards, Ryan recognizes Shulk recoiling from this vision, but Shulk says it's nothing. When is anything ever nothing with these visions? Definitely. It, it creates conflict within the group. Um, I think sh what Shulk wants is he wants to bear the burden of the Monado all by himself. We, we saw this at the very start of the game. He wants to un uncover its secrets. I want to work out its secret. There's an aspect of he doesn't want people to have to suffer under its weight anymore. Dunbin wielding it and being injured. Other people, may, maybe it even goes back to, this isn't expressly said, but maybe it even goes back to the idea that his whole expedition party died to find this thing. And this thing has just been a source of strife in his life. So if he can bear that weight by himself, if he can uncover its secrets and solve its riddles on his own, then other people don't have to carry this incredible weight. And what this conflict that we see happen among the party, the resolution of it is Ryan coming to the conclusion that Shulk cannot bear the weight of the Monado alone. Even if he's the one to wield it, he, he's stupid. It's kind of what he says. It's he's a fool if he thinks that it's his job alone to contribute to solving the visions, and that he's better off just sharing them right away rather than trying to bear them by himself. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because in the following scene, we we get the death scene, the death vision again, and Ryan chastises him. He says, "You're useless on your own, Shulk. That's why I'm here. Next time you get a vision, you tell us." Next time you have a vision, you tell us. We bear the burden together as a team. Ah. You have a vision you don't like, we'll change the future together. Got it? Got it. What was that? Say it like you mean it. And Sharla reinforces Ryan as well. I also appreciate, Nate, you're drawing this sort of parallel to the Lord of the Rings, like the burden of carrying the ring, the ring bearer Frodo, um, mm -hmm. has to be the one to to haul this thing to Mount Doom. I, that wasn't an analogy that was that I had thought of until uh, you mentioned it. And wow, what a great draw. It, and it just popped into my head, too, as I was thinking about it, that there's still a lot of mystery shrouded around that uh, snowy tower Shulk passed out in front of the Monado scene. We don't we don't know anything of what's going on there. But the question I've had going back to since we started the game is what motivates Shulk? What is he before the Mechon attacked? He was clearly driven to uh, discover this thing's inner powers, its secrets, its mysteries, etc. And even before the Mechon attack, he received the vision when he touched it. So there's a lot going on there that I, I need to understand Shulk's motivations a little bit better here. 
I know he wants to kill Metal Face. So that's a given, but it seems like there's a bigger story going on. Yeah, originally it was scientific discovery, and now it's revenge on uh, with Metal Face. Um, but we shall see. I, I think you know we've we've talked about each chapter kind of having a specific theme of some kind. I think this was our breakthrough moment in the chapter. This idea of collaboration among the party and them. You know, Charlotte's fairly new. Shulk and Ryan have known each other their whole life, but it seems like even she's completely invested, she's completely bought into them as a trio that they're going to solve this problem. And this development of they're all in it together, maybe that's a more powerful development than, hey, I can shield you now or I can make you fast. Maybe this is going to be a bigger leap forward in their capabilities. The fact that they're all going to. work together to harness this power and solve these problems. When we reach observation point, the mines open up to an enormous open area with a fat drill-like structure in the center of the room encircled by scaffolds and platforms rising up and down via winches. There are large rotary fans blowing air onto it from the top. Pathways arc out from the scaffolding to the edges of the cavern. Some parts of the structure glow with red lights. According to Charlo, it's the central pit. For as large as a place as this, it is empty as a tomb. According to the Bionis map, we are at its crotch area. And so, Nate, I got to ask you, is this drill its penis? I I have different observations about the drill, so I'm going to go with no. It is not. Okay, I'll just drown you down as no here. Okay, no. Doesn't think it's his well, penis. Great. Titanic penis? Giant drill? What? Sure about it's that? in. Sure about it's that? in any. It's an any then, if it is. It's going to have to do a 180 to be of any effect oh, no. in, its current, in its current state. We're inside the, the body. I know outside. we're inside the body. Yeah. <laughs> it's, an, it, it's, a, it's a titanic phallic. Okay. Well, okay, so, so here's take the reins, please. Let he, me here's a different angle that you've now inspired me to. You know, Bionis is biological where surrounded by rock. Oh no. So this is a mechanical object inserted <laughs> in the area. <laughs> is this somebody else? <laughs> okay, cut that. <laughs> so this is a mechanical object inserted in a biological area. Is this some other beings giant metal penis? Okay, so Bionis and Mechanis, they do more than just fight with each other. Yeah, maybe this is the reason they're fighting. <laughs> I need a break after that. Oh my god! <laughs> oh boy. Okay, let's get composed. I'm gonna step back and be a little bit more serious with this, if that's all right. Yeah, we we could stand to have that. Yeah. Post-production Tyler here. You probably noticed we're splitting this chapter into two parts, and uh, I'm feeling like now is a good time to take a break. Join us next time for the resolution of this Minds chapter, and we'll see what happens next for Shulk and company. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ah!